if fake news is, is not changing our beliefs and is in fact uh, just reinforcing what we already believe and that we want to believe, then it's unlikely that we're going to solve the fake news problem by just making it easier for people to detect any fake news articles. Welcome to the ProQuest podcast. I'm Matt Toby. Uh, today we're going to be talking about fake news. Uh, and uh, joining me to uh, discuss this topic is Adam Blackwell from ProQuest. Uh, Adam, go ahead and uh, introduce yourself. Okay. Um, well, I uh, work on our uh, platform team here at ProQuest, and I also work in our dissertations uh, business. And uh, the reason I think that um, I did some research into fake news, which ended up presenting at conferences, was a couple of years back. Um, I was part of a group uh, here at ProQuest where we were kind of charged with uh, understanding fake news and thinking about how we could position ourselves and position ProQuest as, uh, as you know, part of the solution to that problem. And so I did the research as part of that and ended up presenting at various uh, conferences. Uh, so fake news as a term uh, became rather ubiquitous during the 2016 presidential election in the U.S. Uh, but fake news as a problem, uh, I would imagine, has been around much longer than that. Um, what, what can you tell us about uh, the history of fake news? How far does this go back? And how has it uh, evolved over time? Yeah, I mean, it obviously goes back uh, probably as long as, as, as uh, there is a record. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's some times in history where it was, uh, it was very prominent. Uh, you think about the Nazi era and the propaganda uh, effort that helped the Nazis uh, get to power and consolidate power. Uh, I mean, we call it propaganda then, um, but it's clearly not a new thing. And you know, one of the one of the one of the iterations of the research that I um, presented was um, the, the title I had was something about how we have sort of inadvertently rebranded a long-standing information literacy problem as as fake news, and 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 we've kind of made it seem like it's a new thing when really it's it's not. Do you, and do you think that? Um... Do you think that calling it fake news uh, and, and treating it as if it's something new uh, it, it ignores history in a, in a de detrimental way? Or do you think that there's something unique about the challenge that uh, fake news poses uh, in, in the modern era? Well, there's clearly something unique about this, this sort of modern uh, version of fake news in that we have uh, ways of communicating and uh, you know, channels of dissemination, which clearly we haven't had before. So it's now possible for a piece of false information to be seen by literally hundreds of millions of people in a very, very short space of time. So that, that can magnify the, the problem. Uh, the, you know, the, the concern I had with sort of calling it fake news and, and, and sort of acting as though this, is, this was something that had only happened in 2016 was I think it, it um, makes it harder for us to really figure out what the solution is. And you know, you mentioned that it, it had sort of been a, 
kind of buzz buzz term associated with the 2016 election in this country, and I think that's uh, that, that's right. That does seem to be when there's um, the interest spiked. In fact, part of the, part of the research I did was looking at how often the term fake news was used, and you can basically go through 2016 and it's not used very much at all. Then in up to 2016, it just it just goes through the through the roof, and you you actually looked at. You know our historical newspaper mm -hmm. product to look at look at that, and you, you can see it's it's clearly you know, the interest has just spiked. Yeah, I can imagine that. Again, even even in instances of it prior to that, um, you wouldn't see that exact term. Uh, no one near as often. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what um, what do you, what do you think is the greatest challenge um, uh, that that fake news poses? Uh, right now? Well, <clears throat> it's an interesting question, um, and not a, and there's no obvious answer to it as to like, you know, what is the, you know, what is the harm that uh, comes from fake news? I think for quite a while, um, you know, or certainly in the months after the election and to, to a large extent, still, um, I think, you know, my contention and my argument is that people are, are thinking about fake news in, in the wrong way. Um, in, in two, and I mean that in two respects. Mm -hmm. One, uh, when people think about fake news, and you see this even like uh, on websites at universities uh, put together by libra you know, librarians and educators, is some of the imagery they use to describe fake news. And it's like flying saucers and, you know, alien pregnancies and things like that. We still tend to think about that, uh, you know, National Enquirer tabloid sort of view of fake news. Um, and as long as we're thinking in those terms, we're really, I think, missing the point. Um, because the, the kind of fake news as a problem now really doesn't have anything to do with flying sources or um, any of that stuff. It has to do with um, very, I mean, it thrives. The currency is, is, is highly plausible stories that just happen not to be true. Mm -hmm. And you know, as long as we're thinking about flying sources, we're we're we're, we're not looking at looking at it properly. Um, the second sort of misconception, I would say, with regard to you know, popular um, views of fake news, is that somehow fake news is fooling us. It's making us believe things that we otherwise would not believe, and in some cases, it may even be leading us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. Um, I think at the margins you may have some examples of this. You may, you may be able to make the case that this particular kind of fake news has led somebody to actually um, you know, do something. I mean, there was that example of the guy who believed there was a, you know, a child sex ring being run in a pizza restaurant in, in D.C. and, mm -hmm. you know, apparently went, went there to in investigate. Now, I mean, it's in any one case impossible to know really what, what you know, led somebody to do that, but he, you know, he claimed to have believed something which he had, he had seen, um, which was, you know, which was fake news. Right. Um, but, but generally speaking, I think that's not how fake news operates. I do not think it, it, cha it changes our belief. And, there's a lot of evidence that um, you know that doesn't change beliefs in that we're much more inclined to believe fake news that supports something we already believe mm -hmm. than we are to believe uh, fake news that challenges something that we that we believe, and um, therefore this is uh, well 
what follows from this is if fake news is, is not changing our beliefs and is in fact uh, just reinforcing what we already believe and that we want to believe, then it's unlikely that we're going to solve the fake news problem by just making it easier for people to detect a fake news article, say. I think we have to go much deeper, and really this is the argument I've been making um, you know, from, from the start, is we need to go much, kind of have to go back to basics and just, and just re-examine um, our relationship with information. And in particular, we have to recognize that people, all of us, you know, we want to believe the things that we like, mm -hmm. like to believe, and we are out there looking for information that supports it, and if that information just happens to be false, well, so be it. Yeah, I, I, I would think it's fair to say that um, one of the underreported problems with fake news is that uh, many people uh, seek it out because it does reinfor reinforce their, uh, their, uh, their existing uh, feelings and yeah. prejudices and, uh, and opinions and, and uh, gives them ammunition. Uh, for uh, continuing to believe them, whether they're true or not. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. Uh, I mean, the analogy I used in my when I presented the most recently, it was just a couple of months ago at UKSG, was I, well, I, I, I used a different analogy before that. Fake news is is kind of like refined sugar, in that it uh, well, if you take if you take a normal story, I mean, a real story. There's going to be something in that story that probably supports what we believe, gives us ammunition that you know for our beliefs, and there's stuff that may challenge it. Whereas with a fake news story, because it's not tied in any way to real events, to real people. Well, I mean, often it's to real people, but not to real events, not to real life. It can be made up to give us exactly what we want and none mm -hmm. of what we what don't want. Nothing challenging, but merely support. And so, in that sense, I kind of see it as kind of a as a refined sugar, it's just easy for us to take in and, and, and digest, but it's not good for us. Right. And um, so the so the the analogy I used most recently was we you know there's there's a I mean most of us would probably agree that you know we should eat less junk food and we should cut down on, on on junk food, but the solution to the problem of eating too much junk food is, is very likely not going to be just making it easier for people to know that what they're eating is bad for them, like giving them the, you know, all of the sugar, refined sugar grams, all of the calories, and just giving people that information is probably not going to make them stop eating it. Um, you know, so I said, like, if you invented a scale where you could, like, put a bunch of donuts on the scale and it would immediately tell you, here's all the bad stuff in here, uh -huh. it's unlikely that that's going to stop people eating donuts. Why? Well, because we like donuts and we want to keep eating donuts. We may look around for an article that says, hey, actually, the you know, refined sugar is not so bad for you. We might look for a different scale that gives mm -hmm. us different measurements or something, but we're not going to stop eating it just because we have the facts now. Sure. And I think that's the same thing with fake news. We're not going to stop believing it just because we have something that says, hey, this is probably fake, um, we, you know, because we don't want to. So what do you... What do you think is the most effective thing that the average person can do to protect themselves from fake news? To um, I, I, you know, I, I think it's it's probably more than just protecting oneself, and and, and more about 
rethinking the way that we consume information. What, what, what do you think are, are the most effective things that the average person can do? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you kind of hit on it in the way you asked the question. Um, because if, if it's, if being sort of taken in by fake news is, it, is a disease, then um, it's a disease that we don't want to be cured of by mm-hmm. and large. So I think, you know, the first step has to be just acknowledging that we, as in we humans, have this desire to uh, keep believing, you know, the things that we want to believe and that we are uniquely, as a species, I suppose, mm-hmm. uniquely susceptible to believing stuff that's not true just because we have this desire for, you know, to keep believing the things that we want. Um, I suppose once, you know, I mean, and once you've recognized that, then I think everything else is almost a footnote, um, but is, you know, that's a monumental challenge to, uh, you know, for people to recognize that and to think, okay, well, I want to do something about that. Um, I mean, if you, if you take it as, if you take, if you make the assumption that people do want to avoid being taken in by fake news, if we can kind of take that as a starting point, then I think there are plenty of things that people uh, can do. Um, I think, you know, one, if they find information which seems to be just like too good to be true from, you know, from their point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there was a famous example in the 2016 election of um, a news article that said the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump. Right. And, you know, I can imagine if you were a, you know, a certain kind of uh, Catholic who, who, you know, who wanted to vote uh, you know, against Hillary Clinton or something, but, you know, but there was something about the personality of Donald Trump that was off-putting to you. You go, oh, I don't know if I can really justify this. And then you have the Pope saying, he's the guy. Yeah, I can imagine that, sure. was, that was, that was, uh, uh, you know, well, a lot of people. It was a good message for them, uh-huh. for them, for them to hear. So, if anything seems like too good to be true, then you know, it's it'd be being very careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the other obvious things are, um, you know, where is this being reported? Where are you reading it? I mean, if you're reading it in the New England Journal of Medicine, okay, well, that's one thing. If you're reading it on on a blog that you've never heard of before, uh, you know, but it's linked to one through your friend's social media account, then you know, not the same. Uh, obviously, you can if it's something in, you know in the news and news cycle, you can look is it is it being reported in multiple sources? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not as easy as it sounds, because because a story can be picked up from a single source but reported in a bunch of different sources, mm-hmm. and so so it's not always independent confirmation. But nonetheless, you know you, some of the you know the bigger more reputable newspapers will have, you know, obviously have their quality control in place and fact-checking in place. So if you see it reported in, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times and, you know, and, and whatever, then, uh, you know, that, that's that's evidence that we should probably do something about. Yeah, it, it's interesting because uh, in preparing for, for this interview, just in the past few days, and I'm, and I'm sure that I'm, I'm uh, I was, uh, more aware of the the topic uh, going into this than I usually would be, but I noticed twice in the past week that there were news stories that were picked up by seemingly reputable sources and then were, uh, but it it all originated from one dubious source. 
and the ball starts rolling right. and before you know it and then a day or two later yeah. oh you know what this the exact opposite happened yeah um, and so I think that uh, even you know even when we as information consumers are doing our best the people reporting these things are human as well and they're just as susceptible to it as we are um, and so there's uh, it, it's a challenge at a lot of levels um, what uh, what can you tell me about uh, what ProQuest in, in particular is doing as an organization um, to combat fake news? Well, as I say, part of um, what we decided to do as this group was to uh, was to use to present at conferences, you know, submit proposals, and if they're accepted, present at, at conferences and. And so there's been some outreach in that sense. Um, you know, I had an article published in the um, Against the Grain, which is the publication associated with the Charleston Conference, um, things like that. But I think you know what ProQuest is doing is what ProQuest has always done, which is to provide resources that are uh, you know vetted. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you look at it in the K-12 space, we have. Uh, I, I believe, compared to our you know competitors, I think we have a, a, a much bigger editorial staff, uh, and you know their job is to provide is to find um, authoritative information, um, whether that's in single articles or whether in in in, in whole titles, and, and and we get those in the in the databases. And so any K twelve kids who come to the databases. You know, it's not the wild west of Google. I mean, there's somebody who said, "Yeah, who's made a decision. This is this is worth including." Um, I mean, it doesn't mean there can't be mistakes, obviously, but uh, you know, that's that's a that's a, there's a, there's a threshold there. You know, that's there's criteria that have been met, which when you're just on the web, you obviously don't have that reassurance. You know, on the academic side, I think you know, a product like you know, a new product, ProQuest One, academic. Uh, is helpful in that in that, that context, um, in that it's a big, huge product which has all sorts of different kinds of content and source types, um, covers all sorts of different disciplines, and uh, realistically, for you know almost any project an undergraduate certainly is likely to have. I mean, it's going to give them far more sources than they could possibly use. There's really no need to go out to Google mm -hmm. anymore. Um, you know, they could just come to ProQuest and search ProQuest One Academic and, and get far more sources than they would likely ever need to use or certainly to cite. And again, there that comes, you know, with, with a reassurance that there's been a decision made that this publication has value. This right. is worthwhile. Um, again, doesn't mean that there can't be mistakes, mm -hmm. um, but it does dramatically increase the confidence that a user can have. I would say. Yeah, there's a foundation of trust yeah. when you know you have a when you're going somewhere that uh, that's been vetted and uh, yeah. and and where you know you you know that at least. Uh, in the past, you've found reliable information, and yeah. presumably will continue to be able to find reliable information more so than just taking a stab in the dark uh, on a search engine. Yeah, I mean, and you know, the, we we talk about fake news. I mean, that's that's 
kind of information that people typically encounter in a kind of a consumer space. But there has been kind of this parallel in the academic uh, space as well. Uh, I mean, open access has had a lot of great benefits for people, and you know, it's this is where we're heading. I have no doubt about that. But you know, there have been some negative uh, outcomes of, of this move towards more, more open access, and and it, and in general, there have been a negative outcome, some negative outcomes of this kind of digitization, you know, the PDE, print electronic mm -hmm. uh, revolution. One of those is it's you know, the, the barriers toward, you know, creating your own journal are much lower than they used to be. And I know printing costs involve now. Um, and I mean, to do it right, it's still expensive, but it's possible to kind of throw something out there pretty quickly now. And so we've seen the rise of these predatory publishers, you know, which are, um, you know, very much for profit publishing companies who uh, who you know trying to get people to pay them a lot of money to publish their articles mm -hmm. and uh, you know and some of them have um, you know kind of nonsense articles I mean there's you know, been some famous sort of experiments with uh, people have uh, submitted just nonsense articles that have been accepted for publication and so uh, you know so, so, so just because something calls itself a scholarly journal now, Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, that, that doesn't ha give you the same kind of guarantee that it used to in a, in a print environment, and so, yeah. So I think there's that parallel in the academic space as well. Right. Do you have a sense of how much fake news is created out of malice versus how much is just bad journalism, clumsiness, yeah. you know, accidents? Um, well, I guess. I think fake news is n is never created accidentally. Mm -hmm. um, that's not to say, obviously, that there can't be false information that's gets out there because of accident, because that happens all the time. But I think the definition that I would use of fake news is is that it's it's deliberate, it's intentional. It's not an article that's um, uh, published that has a mistake in it, mm -hmm. um, or even. A lot of mistakes, even if they're serious. I mean, I think they're then when we're thinking about fake news, that element of intention, an intention to deceive, is 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 really important. Mm -hmm. um, as for how much of it is kind of malice and trolling versus uh, you know other motivations, hard to say. Um, I mean, you know, the, the financial uh, motivation is is very significant. I mean, I think. You know, there was sort of famously these kids in, I think it was Macedonia, in, during the election season, who who were finding these fake articles uh, about mostly putting Trump in a positive light, and they were uh, posting these and getting clicks, and and they were getting paid for you know sure. based 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 on the on these clicks, and so they were probably case, indifferent about the politics. Yeah, they yeah, were just I, I trying to make so. money. Exactly, it was just yeah. it was just they found if I you know post the if I repost these articles, I get more clicks, and if I post mm -hmm. these true repost these true articles, and so they were you know they're getting so there's there's that there's that incentive. Mm -hmm. um, there's a interesting Russian journalist. Her name is Masha Gessen. She writes um, for the New Yorker now. But she has made the case that um, you know we uh, Ameri I'm, 
I don't know, I'm American, but in this, I'll include myself in this formulation here, that Americans, we Americans tend to view um, fake news in, a, in a quite a naive way, mm -hmm. as though, uh, you know, one is always kind of like just the opposite of what is really true or something like that. And she says, no, the, 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 the purpose of, the, of many of the purveyors of fake news is not to convince you that a lie, a particular lie, is, is true. It's to undermine your confidence generally so that you don't know what's true, what's what's false. And so if obviously if every every piece of information you read was false, then in a way that gives you a kind of information. Mm -hmm. Because you can go, okay, well it's not that's not the case, and that is something else. Yeah. Whereas if you're getting truth mixed in with with the fake and so on, then it can have a very destabilizing effect. And her argument is this is why people um, this is how people come to feel very powerless, like they can't right. do anything. And so they become very non engaged and, and that you know and that's good for you know the entities who who have all the power because mm -hmm. it means they're not going to be challenged. That's that's her argument. It's yeah. an interesting argument. It it seems analogous to the practice of whataboutism, where mm -hmm. you are essentially uh, trying to persuade people to to question everything to the mm -hmm. point where they right. they don't know what to believe and right. lose all trust in yeah. in everything except for their own mm -hmm. you know. Uh, base instincts which you know can only get you so far yeah and so um so last or in march i guess it was i um presented in um uh in france at an ex libris event it was some french library directors there and and um i mean i guess i was kind of presenting on proquest one academic um but i gave you know, quite a lot of context before I even started talking about the product. And I talked about uh, when I was an instructor at the University of Utah, I was on the English faculty there for, for a while. And when, when I was teaching there, there was always a moment every semester, which, I mean, I knew like clockwork it would happen. And it was the moment when I told the class, no, the New York Times is not a scholarly source. Mm -hmm. They, um, that blew their minds. It blew their minds because for them, if they could cite the New York Times, wow, you know, they they were doing well. Right. And you know, of course, that led into conversations about peer review and scholarly journals and source types and so on. But you know, they they were always shocked, and it didn't. You know, I mean, it was I was just say it was in Utah, so probably most of the students there came from fairly conservative families, but still, it was it was shocking to them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I haven't I haven't I haven't um, taught for many years now. Uh, but you know, I remain in contact with uh, colleagues who, who who stayed in in academia, and they say that now um, it's not such a shock. It's not such a shock to these students, to many students, to find out that the New York Times is not a scholarly source. And so you think, okay, good, it's it's worked. You know, that you know that the information literacy that we you know we've, we've been teaching all these years has uh, has has worked. They they get now. You know, why the New York Times is not considered a scholarly source. Unfortunately, that's tends to, uh, is often not the reason that they're not surprised. The reason they're not surprised because because some of them have become conditioned to think of the New York Times as fake news. Mm -hmm. So not only is it not a scholarly source, but no, it's not. It's fake news. And so there's a um, I don't know. I don't know what she, what she is. I don't know what her title is, but um, she speaks at various information literacy conferences. Her name is uh, Dana Boyd. Um, lowercase d, lowercase b. And 
she has kind of made the argument that you know we've gone too far that in 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 um, in teaching our students to be skeptical, mm-hmm. um, in a way we've succeeded too well. Right and now they're too skeptical, and so they've gone from uh, you know being surprised to find out the New York Times is not a scholarly source, kind of dismissing anything in the New York Times, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or other similar publications. And so I think our challenge now is to, I mean, while I think we have to continue to inculcate appropriate skepticism, we have to do that in a context of, uh, of well, I mean, we have to do it with a recognition that nobody wins when everybody is kind of indiscriminately skeptical of everything so we have to kind of there's a balance now that we're right. trying to achieve yeah I, and that's a lot harder than an all or nothing approach I'm sure yeah um, so looking forward to the 2020 election and beyond um, what you know nobody has a crystal ball but if you had to uh, predict what new forms fake news might take, what new challenges we might face, um, worst case scenarios, what uh, what do you fear the most about the future of fake news? Well, I guess what I fear the most about the future of fake news is just, is it kind of a, a subset of, of what I fear about our relationship to news and information generally. Mm-hmm. And that is that increasingly we, all of us, are kind of curating not just our news, but our information. And I mean, you compare the situation now to you know, a few decades ago when there was a, a relatively small number of sources, could be you know, TV news on one of three channels or whatever that everybody, mm-hmm. everybody watched. Um, you know, whereas now, I think it's very possible that most, you know, a lot of people get most of their news through social media feeds, that you can go a long time without um, reading anything that comes from a perspective that you know would challenge your perspective. And so, I mean, personally, I'm less worried about fake news. I'm less worried that somebody's going to read an article that's false and think it's true than I am that we are going to continue to self-curate, we're going to continue to interact only with people who we agree with, Mm -hmm. and that we're not going to challenge ourselves or our views, and as a result, you're going to seek increasing polarization, Um, and it's probably going to be pretty ugly. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, hopefully, uh, the work that you're doing and the work that we're doing here is uh, going to make a difference and uh, we'll be able to provide people with, with information that uh, that they can trust and that does challenge their views and uh, we can find that balance that that uh, is always necessary and I think is more necessary than ever and, and, uh, and harder to, to find because like you said, it's it's very easy for us to, to create information bubbles and and to uh, uh, feed ourselves a diet that's only what we want to consume rather than what we need to be consuming. Uh, Well, this was uh, fascinating. Uh, I appreciate you doing this, and uh, that's not fake news. (laughs) Um, uh, 
we were uh, we were talking about the future and uh, as uh, as the election season continues and things uh, take shape uh, I might like to revisit this with you I hope uh, sure. hope you'd be willing to Absolutely. return it's been fun. all right well thank you Adam it was great talking to you thank you